This episode of The Minimalists is 100% gluten-free, sugar-free, and advertisement-free. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit theminimalists.com slash donate. Enjoy the show. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with Less. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together we form the minimalists. <laughs> like we're the Transformers or, or I wish it was Voltron. Voltron. Yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> you know, um, this is episode number 10. We decided to do, we're calling this episode random. We decided to, to answer a bunch of random questions about minimalism and relationships and a bunch of other stuff today. So we have a, a bunch of random voicemails we're going to answer and then some lightning round questions from Facebook and Instagram and, and Twitter. Um, speaking of random, Ryan, anything random happened in your life lately? Sure, man. Random things happen all the time. Let's see. Last Life is random. Sunday, man, that is profound. Yeah. Last Sunday, less, uh, I guess it was a little under a week ago, was Valentine's Day. And on our uh, podcast that we put out before then, I was like, oh, we don't have any Valentine's Day plans. But we actually did. I just totally forgot about them. We went to... Uh, up to Whitefish, Montana, and our friend, um, they run a cabaret. It's like, a, well, everybody knows what a cabaret is. It's just like a sketch comedy show, um, you know, a little risque, I guess. Uh, that was a lot of fun to do that. But we also did this uh, float tank. You yeah. did a float tank, right? Yeah, I love it. It's uh, Well, I love it and because I hated it at first. The very first time I did a float tank, like, it's, so it's sensory, sensory deprivation, right? And and you basically put yourself in this salt water that's the same temperature as it's your like a skin. thousand pounds of Epsom salt or something. Right. It's like a gigantic bathtub that you float in, completely dark. You cut off all your senses, sound. Um, well, maybe not all. If you get a little salt water in your mouth, you, you <laughs> certainly have I did get taste. some in my eyes. It was oh, miserable. It's painful. Well, it's funny because like at first, the only sense you have is like the feeling of the water and kind of that because mm-hmm. uh, you're floating because the, there's so much salt in there. It's, uh, you're so buoyant. So, like, you can feel where the water uh, line goes around your body. Right. But it's kept at, like, a 98-degree temperature. So even eventually you stop feeling that because you kind of get the same temperature as the water. It's yep. really – I felt like I needed to practice at it more. You know, I well, I felt that same way, too. The, the first – so I went for an hour the last time I went. And I think we're going to go in L.A. when we're on tour. We got invited to, to a place out there oh, to, right, yeah. to spend some time. Uh, there are there's been a lot of studies recently with sens- sensory deprivation and how it helps you repair the brain but also live more live more mindfully mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what when you put yourself in one of those tanks for an hour you realize just how loud your mind is because it turns everything else off yeah. all external stimuli including the sense of touch you have the sense of, of sound and sight, and all of a sudden you're just left with the volume of your mind turned way up. Yeah. With me, I also I have tinnitus in my right ear, so I, I still have this like ringing that goes on when I'm in there. I can't really stop that, and that gets turned up too. But um, yeah, it, it's an amazing experience. I remember the first 56 minutes for me, I felt like I 
I, I wanted to run out. I wanted to escape because yeah. all the volume was turned up. But the last four or five minutes were just amazing. Like It, it didn't turn the thoughts off, obviously, but I, it got it down to this level where I'm like, oh. Yeah. This is this is so much better. Yeah, if you're someone who has never been to a float tank and you're someone who meditates on a regular or semi-regular basis, it still will probably be an uncomfortable first experience. And that, that's what I mean by I need more practice at it. Like as soon as I got in there, I'm like, man, I need to meditate more. This is uh this is really loud for as quiet as it's supposed to be right now. But no, it was a great experience. I uh, w- w- when I g- got out of there, I I felt better. I mean, the, the Epsom salt definitely helps uh, with the magnesium and muscle aches and pains and things like that. And yeah. I'm kind of getting over some snowboarding injuries right now. But yeah, it was it was great. I would recommend I would recommend that to anyone who's looking for a a, a mindful experience, or if you're uh, experiencing some aches and pains in your joints, uh, a float take experience could be something for you. Yeah, for sure. Let's move on to our very first voicemail question. This one is from Amy in Washington, D.C. What happens when you realize that regardless of the activity, there are just some relationships that you no longer want to invest in at all? Um, Often this happens with acquaintances. I'm not talking about close friends. And rather than just blowing somebody off or ignoring their calls or pushing it down the road to reschedule, do you have suggestions for how you can be honest with somebody and be compassionate while telling him while telling him or her that it's not a friendship that you have the time or the energy to pursue? Well, Amy from Washington, D.C., thanks a lot for that, that question. That is certainly something that should be considered when we are uh, changing our relationships. You know, we don't want to just send someone a text message that says, sorry, I don't want to hang out with you anymore. Um, I mean, I guess you could do that. One thing I would say there is you're not obligated to do anything. But if you are looking for a heartfelt way to uh, express to someone that you no longer want to hang out with them, uh, there's there's a couple ways you can do that. I mean, first you can go to someone and, and just kind of have a simple conversation and say, hey, you know, I have been simplifying my life and I've been changing a lot of my habits and my daily routine. And since I've been doing that, I'm not going to have time for X activity. So for me, uh, this was uh, this was a conversation that I had with some drinking buddies. It was, hey, man, I am really trying to change my habits. I'm trying to change my routine. I don't want to go to happy hour every single weekday. I'm going to stop uh, showing up at this bar and uh, I'm not going to be racking up big bar tabs anymore. This is one of the habits that I'm trying to change. How did people react to that when when you had that conversation with them? The majority of them were either indifferent or they were supportive, right? Uh I mean, because when you go to someone and say, hey, I have a problem with drinking and I need to cut back a lot, I mean, who's going to say... No, you're fine, man. And anyone who did say, no, you're fine, just keep on drinking, like I probably wouldn't listen to them anyway. Sure. So the majority of people were like, yeah, that's great. And, you know, it's not like I told them, hey, I'm not going to be seeing you anymore. It was more about I'm probably not going to be seeing you as much. So when you're having this conversation, that's something that I would encourage you to say too, is like, you know, this doesn't mean that that we're never going to see each other again, uh, but it does probably mean that we are going to see each other less. And I will say some of those friends, uh, when I go back to Ohio, 
Um, I may hang out with them. I may not. But some of those friends, too, who I had that conversation with, who I did plan on seeing, I just kind of never actually ended up seeing again. And there was never any hostility. There was never any arguments that sparked between us. Um, But having a simple conversation like that really helped me just set people with the right expectation. Now, Amy specifically mentioned acquaintances, but when you're having conversations like this with your friends or family member or a spouse or a significant other, uh, certainly you're going to use some different language, right? You want to talk about if if you want to, for example, break up with someone and you're realizing like, wow, we don't have the same values. We don't have the same beliefs. um, We're not aligned with our uh, with our future, those are the exact things that I would bring up with a significant other or or even with a family member. Hey, um, our values and beliefs, uh, they, they don't seem to be aligning as much. How can we get those to align? How can we, how can we work together? And that would be the first step. Um, if you're unable to find a solution, then maybe uh, that's where the conversation comes into, well, maybe we, we shouldn't hang out as much. Yeah, and that, that reminds me of an essay that we wrote a few years ago called Letting Go of Shitty Relationships. And so I'd love to read an excerpt because I think it really touches on that. There isn't necessarily always a clean break. Sometimes relationships just dissipate over time. Values change. People go in different directions. And and sometimes you have to actually initiate that clean break. So this is an excerpt from Letting Go of Shitty Relationships, which you can find in our book, Essential. So Amy, I'm going to send you a a copy of, of that book as well. Some relationships are particularly pernicious. We often develop relationships out of convenience without considering the traits necessary to build a successful bond with another person. Important traits like unwavering support, shared trust, and loving encouragement. When a relationship is birthed out of proximity or chemistry alone, it is bound to fail. We need more than a person's physical presence to maintain a meaningful connection. But we routinely keep people around simply because they're already around. It's easy to develop a connection with a coworker, schoolmate, or someone who's already there, even when they're not adding value to our lives. It's even easier to stay in those relationships. Old relationships are comfortable, and starting new relationships is difficult. New relationships require work, but anything worth holding on to does. We've all held on to someone who didn't deserve to be there, and most of us still have someone in our lives who continually drains us, someone who doesn't add value, someone who isn't supportive, someone who takes and takes and takes without giving back, someone who contributes very little and prevents us from growing, someone who constantly plays the victim. But victims become victimizers, and these people are dangerous. They keep us from feeling fulfilled. They keep us from living purpose-driven lives. Over time, these negative relationships become part of our identity. They define us. They become who we are. Fortunately, this needn't be the case. Several actions can be taken to rid ourselves of negative relationships. First, you can attempt to fix the relationship. This is obviously the preferable solution, albeit not always possible or worthwhile. People change over time, and so do relationships. You can change how your relationships work, be it marriage, friendship, or family, without completely ditching the relationship. Sit down with the person who's draining the vitality from your life and explain to them what must change in order for the relationship to work. 
Explain you need them to be more supportive. You need them to participate in your growth. And although they are important to you, the relationship in its current state does not make you happy. Explain that you're not attempting to change the other person. You simply want to change how your relationship works. Finally, ask them what they'd like to change about the relationship. Ask them how you can add more value to the relationship as well. Listen attentively and act accordingly. If you're unable to change a relationship, end it. This is difficult, but it applies to any relationship, be it family, friends, lovers, co-workers, acquaintances. If someone is only draining your life, it's perfectly acceptable to tell them, this relationship is no longer right for me, so I must move on. You owe it to yourself to move on. You owe it to yourself to be happy in your relationships. You are in control. I'll, uh, I'll stop there, but basically just, just like to say that I think moving on is, is pretty much in many cases, the only way to develop new and empowering relationships, because that, that's what you're looking for ultimately, is to surround yourself with people who are supportive, people who, who will help you in whatever journey, whatever your desires are, your outcomes you're looking for. If you need to connect with some people locally, you can go to our local meetup groups at, at minimalist.org. We have 100 free local meetup groups in eight different countries. Connect with people who are open-minded and and willing to to help support you. If you can't find a city near you, we have an online city on there as well. So hopefully you're able to surround yourself with people running toward people who are going to be more supportive and then being able to walk away from those relationships that are, are negative in your life. Yeah, I mean the the good news here is is like you don't have to get rid of every single bad relationship. You can certainly reposition those relationships or find ways to make those work. I know for me I had to have the conversation with friends and family members, "Hey, I want you to be happy. You want me to be happy too. I support you. You support me, right?" And since that's the case, uh let's continue this friendship in a in a supportive manner. Here's how I am uh, trying to change my life. Um, here's what I've done. This doesn't mean that you have to become a minimalist or incorporate the same habits that I do. Uh, but let's continue to support each other as friends. Yeah, having having conversations, asking questions, and like I, I read in that essay, it was very. It's very much a two way street. Here's what I'd like to change in the relationship, not change you, mm-hmm. but I'd also like to know. It's just as important to me how I can better contribute to this relationship. Mm-hmm. I know I'm asking Beck all Definitely. the time. How can I be better supportive of, of you with this, uh, whether it's with with her daughter or you know w- with us, you know going somewhere or planning a trip or whatever? How can I support you with your work? How can I support you with your family? How can I be more supportive? Because I expect that same level of support that I'm willing to give. That's cr- it's so funny. Uh, you and I have never talked about this, but I ask Mariah the same thing. Really, at least once a week or once every other week. I'm like, if you could change one thing about the way I approach this relationship, like what would you change? Yeah, and, and it's not changing you. It's right. not like, hey, I, I want you to you know, be a different person. You, Ryan, you really need to shave your beard off. Right. And I, I don't like your black T-shirts. You have to start wearing blue T-shirts. Right. It's not about that. It's about how can we work together better. 
yeah. and, and improve and grow together. And that's not just for intimate relationships. It's for friendships as well. And I think Ryan and I, while we, we don't necessarily ask that same question, we are constantly having conversations and diving deep into what it takes to make this relationship work. It's a partnership in the, in the business sense, but it's much more than that. You know, Ryan and I have been like brothers for the last 20-something years, and it's about constantly being willing to adapt to how the relationship changes. Our relationship at age 34 is appreciably different from our relationship at age 10, and it's because we've been willing to change together. Many people that we knew at age 10 we're not still friends with. In fact, <laughs> I think just about all of them because they moved in a different direction. That's not wrong for them. It's just what was right for all parties. Let's move on to our next voicemail from Jane in California. I'm a singer in a band, and I've moved around many times, so I've gotten rid of a lot of personal clutter. But my Achilles heel, my weakness, is clothing and jewelry. And part of it is that I recently lost a lot of weight, and I'm celebrating having a new body. But I'm also in a band, and I love to buy costumes and clothing that I can wear both on and off stage. Um, I also have a day job that's more conservative, so I have clothing for that. But I am just kind of obsessed with clothes, and I'm just curious what the minimalists think about, you know, relationship to clothing. I know um, one of you guys just wears a black T-shirt and jeans, which I think is awesome, but as a singer in a band, I can't do that. So I'm just curious um, what you guys uh, would have to say about, particularly I think most women have this thing about shopping, you know, shopping with apps, and sometimes I'll spend, like, all my all my extra money on clothes and I can't help myself. It's like it's an addiction. And that's the only thing. It's like I don't buy anything else. I don't care about gadgets. I don't care about cars. I don't care about big things. It's just clothes. So I'm just curious what you think about that and how you might be able to help some of us ladies who are kind of obsessed like I am. Jane, so you know what? I, I don't think it's just women or, or even most women that have, have this issue. Ryan and I have been on tour uh, a bunch of times, and we've been on the road, and it's some women have this issue, some men have the issue, including myself. You know, clothes was sort of my big thing. If you if you read everything that remains, I sort of uh, listed all of the things I was getting rid of as I was going through that decluttering process. And also, I'll send you a copy of that of that book, Jane. But um, you know, I had seventy Brooks Brothers dress shirts. Why the hell did I need seventy Brooks Brothers dress shirts? Uh, I had 12 Brooks Brothers suits. Okay, I mean, I understand having more than one suit because you wear a suit to work every single day. I was wearing a suit six days a week. You know what? I didn't need 12 of them, though, and those are fairly expensive suits. I went to the extreme, and it sounds like, Jane, that's what your issue is, too, buying on, on impulse like I did and always thinking we need more, more, more. Like, wow, I really like this pair of Allen Edmonds dress shoes, and they were nice dress shoes, but I had 10 pairs of them. And it's like, okay, maybe you need two pairs of dress shoes so you can alternate. But do you need do you need ten? And and so a few a few things that you said, you know, well Ryan always wears a black t shirt and jeans, and, and that is true. He does always wear a, a black t shirt and jeans. And you said, you know, but because you're in a band, you can't do that. I mean, you, you can do whatever you want. You can give your per- yourself permission to do whatever you want. I, I was at a Noah Gunderson concert recently, and I think every guy on stage had a black T-shirt and jeans on, and so did his sister, who who is you know sort of does lead vocals with him, and and so you can do whatever you want. 
the, the things that, that I would encourage you to look for are, are what can you get that is multi-use, that you can, you know, if you're going to get a costume, are you going to wear it only once, or is it something that you can use repeatedly? So if you find things that have, you know, multi-function, then you have the opportunity to use that one thing more than once a year, or once a month, or, or whatever. The capsule wardrobe is another another route to go. If you just Google capsule wardrobe, you, you can find, you know, people who, you know, live with 33 items for, for three months, or, or or whatever it may be. And the number itself is arbitrary, but I found that if I wanted to go clothes shopping, all I really had to do was get rid of about half my clothes. And as I was going through the, all of my clothes, I realized that, you know what, I'm not using the vast majority of these, but once I cleared these out of the way, oh yeah, there's that one shirt I really liked. Oh, there's, there's the pair of pants I'm not wearing. Why aren't I wearing those? Do I want to wear them? And you start to question the things that you have. And of course, if you're having issues with money uh, around around budgeting for that, I would encourage you to have a clothing budget. When you set your budget each month, if you're not doing a budget, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. Uh, we wrote about this uh, on our website. Um, if you go to theminimalists.com slash freedom, you, you can look at a very specific budget. But you want to set aside a certain amount of money for clothing. And Force yourself not to go over that amount. So it may be a hundred bucks a month, or a hundred bucks a quarter, or whatever it, it might be, and that will also force you to get a little bit creative. I, I just bought a, a new uh, jacket recently, like a rain rain jacket. I got it off of eBay. I think it was like 15 bucks, uh, but you can find them at thrift shops or whatever. So you can get a little more creative with, with how you're spending your money if you limit yourself. So find different creative ways to limit yourself, whether it's with your budget, with a capsule wardrobe, with finding items that are multi-use that you can use throughout the, the, the work week as well as at concerts, etc. And find ways to, to buy responsibly, buy it used. But if you're not using it, put it, back, put it out, back out there in the world. And allow other people to get value from it. I use the 90-90 rule with all of my clothes. If I haven't worn something in the last 90 days, and I know I'm not going to wear it in the next 90 days, I give myself permission to let go of it. In fact, I often use that same rule, but 30-30, and I, then I just hold on to like my winter coat. But you, you can set up some arbitrary rules that may help you establish new, better habits. Yeah, and the numbers uh, that we're throwing out here, the 90-90 rule, the 30-30 rule, the 33 uh, pieces of clothing for three months, all of those numbers, like Josh said, they are arbitrary, but it's a good starting point. Uh, Pick something that you think is a good starting point for yourself and adjust from there. You might pick a number that would be way too much for someone like me who wears the same outfit every single day, but for someone like you who performs and needs to uh, switch outfits, uh, you know, you, you would probably pick a, a larger number than I would. Um, I, the only thing I would add to this too is get clear on the reasons why you want to stop buying clothing. Because simply just saying, well, I want to stop buying clothing because I want to save money, that is a, a good start. But there are other reasons why you want to stop buying clothing. Uh, the the amount of clothing is, is maybe it's weighing on your, on, on your mind uh, and it's cluttering up your mind. Uh, maybe, um, you know, with that money, you're going to save up for a house. I don't know. I'm just throwing stuff out there, but what is that, the money you're going to save? What is that going to do for you? Get clear on those reasons why write those down, keep them with you, put it on your, on your smartphone, or if you don't have a smartphone, put it in your notebook. If, uh, if you don't have that, then write it on a piece of paper and just keep it in your wallet or pocket or purse or whatever, and pull that out every single time that you want to make an impulse buy and look at those benefits. Look at the reasons why 
why you don't want to make that purchase. That will at least help you uh, to catch yourself in the moment and, and hopefully make better decisions. I think that's a great point. And also ask yourself why you always want to buy these clothes. Like, mm-hmm. what, what is the reason? What, what need are you fulfilling by impulsively buying things? And, and for me, it was uh, fulfilling this need for certainty. Like I felt like I was accomplishing something or, or achieving something acquiring something allowed me to feel a sense of accomplishment. And I knew I could actually get that accomplishment via other, more productive, more beneficial to my life means. So figure out what need you're meeting by buying these clothes or wanting these clothes. That What is that desire actually getting you? What's the underlying need? And maybe there are more healthy ways, more productive ways for you to meet that need. Thanks for your your question. I'm going to move on to Allison in Tampa. I have felt extreme guilt acquiring possessions, um, almost to the point where I feel myself getting very anxious when I need to go out and buy something, worried that it's either going to clutter my space or not bring the joy that I want to have in my home. Um, I didn't really realize this until my mother came to visit me last week, and she said she wanted to bring me out to get some things for my house, to which, of course, I balked and said, no, 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 I don't need anything. Anyway, we ended up going out. She got me a nightstand and a light for my bedroom, which I previously did not have, and although I was very anxious about getting it, now have found that it brings a lot of joy to my life because my things are no longer on the floor and I am able to read at night. Um, So I guess my question is, how do you reconcile a minimalist lifestyle with, um, with guilt and anxiety about acquiring possessions because you're not sure if in the moment they are going to be something that adds value to your life? Allison, the thing that I would point out first off is that if we are defined by our things, we will never be happy. Uh, and, and so we just need to keep that in mind. Now, the things that we acquire can certainly be tools in our lives. They shouldn't be given too much meaning, though. So you are completely adequate. You are yourself without any of the external things you surround yourself by. But that said, you can enhance your life with some material things. So in your case, with buying a dresser or a lamp or, or you know something that's gonna, going to augment your experience, I mean, these are things that add value to your life. And that's why when I started this simplifying journey, I started asking that question, does this add value to my life? And what I mean by that is, does it serve a purpose or does it bring me joy? And you have to be really, really honest with yourself because it's easy to justify just about anything that we bring into our lives. It's the reason that we have hundreds of thousands of, of things in our homes and we have the you know 2.2 billion square foot storage industry because we've justified bringing all of these things into our lives. That vegetable dehydrator for our kitchen, the avocado slicer, all of these things that have the potential to add value to your life. But if you're not honest with yourself, you're going to acquire it and then you will feel, feel that guilt. And so a few rules I've set up for myself, anytime I'm going to make a big purchase, so call it a purchase over $20 or $100, whatever you, you set the number as, I will wait for a, spe- a specific time period. And, and for me, it was being willing to wait 30 days until 
I made that purchase. And during those 30 days, I would ask that question, is this actually going to serve a purpose in my life? Is it going to bring me joy? And and that temporary deprivation exposes uh, whether or not that thing will be valuable for me. And even still, by acquiring something, I have to keep asking that question. Over time, that you know, that avocado slicer may not continue to add value. I thought it was, and I used it for you know a couple of years, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait a minute, I'm not slicing avocados anymore. Well, someone else can get value from it. So you can you can acquire things responsibly. You can buy them used, and once you're done with them, you can give them up so that other people can can get that same purpose, that same joy from from the material possession. And then, Allison, you also asked about how to know for sure that you're buying the right thing in the moment. Don't buy things in the moment. Don't buy things impulsively. You found yourself in this situation when your mom came into town, and she wanted to impulsively buy you something. And at first, you were like, no, 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 but then you kind of went out and got something. Um, There's a couple of different approaches you could take here. You could maybe have asked her to buy groceries or maybe not groceries, or maybe uh, just take me out for a meal, or or maybe um, you know you could uh, offer an alternative type of experience. But let's say you know your mother was very adamant about buying pieces of furniture or buying you physical items to put in your home. Now with my mom, she does this. Uh, God love her, and uh, she does it because she loves me and she wants me to have a beautiful home. She also is aware and has the expectation that I set with her early, early on that anything that comes into my home, uh, I may not end up uh, keeping it, even if it is a gift. I do appreciate the gift. I do appreciate the sentimentality. I appreciate the respect and appreciation and all of that. Um, but if it doesn't fit into my home, then I might have to get rid of it. So uh, you could have simply had a you know conversation with your mom that says, yes, let's go get a lamp. Let's go get a, a stand and let's see how it works out. And if it works out and I find a lot of value in it, um, I'm definitely going to hold on to it, but there is a chance that I'm going to bring this in my home, and it may just feel like a lot of clutter, and I might have to return it to the store. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with having that conversation. I'm sure your mom loves you. I'm sure she wants you to be happy. And if that's the case, then she will support you uh, with, with your decisions and with your um, decision on, on living a simple life. Allison, I'd love to t- tell you about an experiment that I did. It was uh, a few weeks after we started our website. So we, we, we started theminimalists.com back in, uh, on December 14th, 2010. And uh, a few weeks later, I, I didn't have anything much to write about. I'd simplified my life, but I, hadn't, I wasn't fully moved on to, to anything else. And so I said, I want something interesting to write about right now. I never believed in New Year's resolutions, but I decided, you know what? I'm going to try a New Year's resolution this year. And since Ryan and I are the minimalists, this is going to be easy for me. It'd be hard for everyone else, but we are the minimalists. And so we must be the experts on this. I decided I'm not going to buy any new material possessions over the course of, of 2011. And, and so it was about five years ago. And you know what? Like That was much, much, much more difficult than I thought. So obviously I'd still buy food and I'd buy hygiene products because I wanted to eat and I didn't want to smell bad. But I abstained from purchasing any new material items. And at first, that impulse, you, you, you notice that impulse because you'll be at the store, you know, buying groceries or something. And then all of a sudden it's like, you'll see you know, a mug that you want to buy. And you're like, oh, I'd like to buy that. And before, like, 
I had the means to buy it because that mug's $3. And okay, great, I'll buy it. But over time, I would want to go buy something. I'd see it on the shelf. Oh, I want to buy that. Oh, that's right, I can't. I'm doing this experiment. And then the next time I was there, I'd, oh, I really want, oh, yeah, I can't. And then eventually, over the course of about four months, it went from the impulse to buy to the appreciation of the thing, even though I didn't consume it. I was able to shift from, I really want to own and possess and hold on to that mug all for myself, to, oh, that's a really nice mug. And being able to, to walk away from it because I, I didn't need it in my life. Now, minimalism isn't about depriving yourself of what you truly need. I did that experiment to reground myself in the essential and to determine what I did need. In fact, I got about six months into the, the experiment and my, I accidentally spilled tea on my computer. And I spent the next month trying to get around without having a computer. <laughs> I tried to go to the library and I realized, you know what, I am actually depriving myself. And so seven months into the experiment, I ended up buying a, a new computer and so I think I technically failed, but overall it was a huge success for me because it helped me reprogram this Twitch to constantly buy on impulse. It helped reprogram that impulse of me. And I would say even today, five years later, I'm a much better, more responsible consumer because of that project. So if you're not going to try that for a year, maybe you try that for four months. See if you can help reprogram your Twitch. Let's move on to Leanna. I'm just beginning my minimalist journey, but I'm feeling a lot of pressure from family, friends, society, etc., to live my life in a certain way, which you would call the American dream. How do you combat the feelings of inadequacy that come from being told that the way you want to live, in this case, less stuff, less traditional way of living, is wrong? Leanna, first I would ask you, why are you hanging out with so many people that are discouraging you from living the life that you want to live? That would be my first question. But I understand that we have people in our lives who uh, maybe it's a family member that we see at holiday gatherings, or maybe it's a coworker uh, that, that we see on a daily basis who's maybe giving you a hard time. You know, for me, it started off with first uh, trying to reprioritize my relationships and explaining to people how I really wanted to live my life and if they would support me. If they were unwilling to support me, uh, then I would let those relationships go. And then the second step is I would go out and find supportive relationships, whether it was on Twitter or whether it was uh, at a um, local meetup.com event or whatever it may be. I would go out and, and seek other people who were supportive. So that, that would be, that would be my, my suggestion is, yes, uh, you're going to have this criticism, but f go out and find people who are going to support you. And try to have more of those people in your life. Fill, fill your life with as many supportive people as possible. Because at that point, all of the naysayers, all of the negative comments that you get, you're going to be able to handle that a lot easier. And don't ever apologize for who you are. You don't need to justify your life to anyone except yourself. You don't need to justify your values. You don't need to justify your beliefs. You don't need to justify your interests or your, your own desires unless those values, beliefs, interests, and desires infringe on someone else's rights. And so realize that you are who you are and be unapologetically 
you. Be enthusiastically you. And if the people around you don't love that, then be willing to find people who do love it. Because I think I'm pretty awesome. And the people around me think I'm pretty awesome now. And other people who may not think, there's, there are millions of people who don't think minimalism is awesome. That's okay. I don't go around touting my, my minimalism to people. What I do is I live a, a life that is in accordance with who I am as a person. And I would certainly encourage you to do the same and ask others for support in that journey. We have a question from Michelle. I am currently working and studying at the same time. I've been doing that for the last seven years. And um, I'm coming to a close. I'm going to be finishing my program. And uh, I get asked a lot, um, you know, why, you know, it's taken me literally a decade um, to get a university degree and why, um, you know, I chose to do, um, you know, that, that route in uh, job interviews. And I'm just wondering if you have any advice on how to answer that question without sounding, um, you know, sounding awkward. Um, yeah, it, you know, it depends on what you're going to school for. I mean, if you are in the middle of getting your doctorate degree, then that's what you would simply explain to them is I'm not finished with schooling yet. If you are changing majors or you you feel awkward about it, um, then yes, I could see where giving an answer, uh, you might project some awkwardness. But before I like answer this question head on, what I want to start off with saying is, is with when anyone goes into an interview. I learned this, Josh learned this, uh, we, we both learned this when we were hiring and firing hundreds of employees. Well, it wasn't the same order, like we didn't hire and fire them immediately. <laughs> right, 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 not immediately. No, you know, Josh and I would be sitting in a conference room, and we would have these literally days blocked off, these 10-hour, 12-hour days sometimes, where we would just have applicant after applicant coming in, and uh, him and I, and, and maybe some other members from our team, would be interviewing uh, different candidates. And I got to tell you, every single person that walked through the door, we were rooting for them. Every single candidate. It was like, oh my goodness, the person who just sat down across from me, please be the one, please be the one that I can say, yes, this is the guy we're going to hire, or this is the gal we're going to hire. And I can open up this door and I can look at all the other applicants and say, hey guys, sorry, we found our fit. Everyone else can go home. So first off, Michelle, please know that any interview you go to, nobody's trying to ask you these gotcha questions. They're going to scrutinize you still because it's what's right for them. But it's not about trying to make you look bad or embarrass you for sure. Right. If someone asks you, so tell me about your schooling. Um, it looks like you've been in there for seven years. They're not necessarily asking that question with the thought of why has this girl not got her degree yet? They're simply asking you a question and looking for an answer. So it sounds to me like when you get asked this question, the best thing to do is, is to really sell yourself. Why have you been in school for seven years? What are the positive points? Like what, what has that schooling given you over the last seven years that, it, that another candidate doesn't have? So uh, if someone asked me, Ryan, why have you been in school for seven years? I might start a sentence with, you know, I love to learn. I really love the school environment, and I've learned so much over the last seven years. And I've been able to really gain a, not, a lot of knowledge on X subject. And now I am ready to apply that knowledge uh, along with you know, some of this other experience that I have 
and I'm really ready to get out there and work hard for a company. So it's really about taking the the positive side of those seven years and, and learning how to project that. I mean, if, if you look at going to school for seven years, yeah, you could look at it as being awkward or uh, you can look at it as spending a lot of time to gain a lot of knowledge uh, so you could so you could uh, be the best candidate for that position. Yeah, you want to go in there and be your own resume. I, I, I can tell you this, like in many jobs, a resume is required. In fact, we're going to have a, a podcast episode coming up really soon about careers, jobs, mission, passion. Uh, so if anyone has a question about that, you're welcome to, to call in really soon. But you want to be your own advocate. You need to be willing to walk in there and sell yourself, not because of what's on this piece of paper, but be the fit that they are looking for. And so if you're going to an interview, the questions they're asking you, realize that you're also interviewing them at the same time. Is this the job that I want? Is this the career path for me? Ultimately, does this align with my values? Does this company align with my beliefs? And you know, I learned that is going to be just as important for a long-term fit, whether it's two years, five years, whatever, because you want to be happy in what you're doing. You don't want to do what you're doing just to rely on an income. Yes, you need to make money to pay the bills, and that's why you're, you're seeking a, a employment. But what you also want to do is do something that's more meaningful. Am I going? Is this job going to allow me to grow? It, am I going to have autonomy, sense of mastery, a sense of purpose in what I'm doing? And so you need you want to show up not just prepared to answer their questions, but prepared to ask them questions to make sure they are the right fit for you. Caitlin in Baltimore has a voicemail question for us. My question has to do with tracking tools. So things like Fitbit or apps that allow you to track things like how much money you spend, how much exercise you do, what you're eating. On one hand, I feel like using the habit of monitoring and tracking will help me budget better, exercise more. But at the same time, I feel like having those tracking tools just kind of overwhelms me. Caitlin from Maryland, thanks for the question. Well, first off, I would say don't take on anything that you immediately are feeling overwhelmed by. I totally agree, Caitlin. If I was sitting here having a conversation with Josh and I wrote down 10 different apps that I wanted to add to my iPhone when I got home, that would be really, really overwhelming, even if they were tools used for tracking purposes. So first and foremost, don't overwhelm yourself. Yeah, and if you if you feel like they're going to actually serve a purpose for you, then you can you know, bring things into your life slowly. Ask that question that we ask about our stuff. Ask that with these apps as well. Is this going to add value to my life? And every 30 days or so, I like to re- go through my phone and remove any apps that I haven't used in the last 30 days and I know I'm not going to use in the next 30. And so be willing to, to let go of those apps if they're overwhelming you or if you just feel like, you know what, I thought I wanted that. I thought it was going to bring value to my life, but now it's not. So be willing to let go, remove that digital clutter. And I'm really reminded because I felt the same way uh, as you did, Caitlin. I had so many tracking tools back in the corporate world. And so I wrote an essay about that. This essay is from our book, Essential. And we'll also put a link to it up on the show notes. And it is called Moving Beyond Goals. You can't manage what you don't measure. This was the corporate mantra by which I lived for a long time. And it's total bullshit. 
We used to measure everything at my old job. There were 29 metrics for which we were responsible every single day, even on weekends. There was morning reporting, 3 p.m. updates, 6 p.m. updates, and end-of-day reporting. I was consumed by numbers. After a while, I even started dreaming in spreadsheet format. I shit you not. Then I realized something. It didn't really matter. The goals were never as powerful as someone's internal motivations. People work hard for two reasons. They are externally inspired or they are internally motivated. Sometimes it's a combination of both. Some people can be momentarily inspired by goal attainment, but that kind of inspiration is impermanent and it doesn't last beyond the goal itself. Conversely, intrinsic motivation such as the desire to grow or the desire to contribute, carries on long after the goal is met. It often carries on in perpetuity. External inspiration can be the trigger, but internal motivation is what fuels someone's desire. When you discover your true motivation, you don't need an arbitrary goal. Goals are for the unmotivated. This is one of the reasons I got rid of all of my goals, so I could focus on What's important? So I could focus on living a life centered around health and relationships and passion and growth and contribution. I don't need goals to focus on these aspects of my life because I'm already motivated by these values. Having goals for these things would be irrelevant. I simply need to live my life in accordance with these principles. Now, I don't want everyone out there to think like goals are pointless, because I do think that sometimes uh, we have to put temporary goals in place. And I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. When I first started my journey into minimalism after the packing party, so first it was getting rid of all this clutter in my home, and then it was about decluttering the rest of my life. So the next thing I moved on to was paring down my debt as much as possible. So the easiest part of that was to get rid of my car. So my goal temporarily was to save money and sell my car. Um, I guess you could maybe put that as two goals, however you want to however you want to look at it. But my my point is is that yeah, I certainly had this this end game with selling my car, getting rid of that car payment so I could find a car without a car payment. And there are certainly tools out there that could have helped me uh, have done that. Now I, I had didn't use any of those tools, but there are budgeting tools. Um, that I certainly could have used to help track my daily spending. I did have a budget. I used Mint.com. That's a great one. Absolutely. No, Mint.com is a great budgeting tool. So with with any of these apps, uh, yeah, certainly if you are looking at a specific end game and an app is going to help you get there to help you keep track, then there's nothing wrong with downloading an app to your phone. Now, what I would discourage... Uh, everyone from doing is listing out 10 goals and downloading 10 apps because that is where uh, that's where things really get diluted. We had this spreadsheet of, hey, here's our top 10 goals that we uh, that we have. And then there were literally um, just different formulas in each cell that correlated with, you know, what have you done this past week? What have you done this past month? What have you done this past year? What actions have you taken for 10 goals? Like you're supposed to keep track of all those actions. Talk about overwhelm. Oh my goodness. So my 10 goals that I had uh, out of, out of 10 goals, I don't think I ever actually got through 
one of them because I was diluting all my time trying to give my attention to so many different goals. When I uh, actually started reaching certain goals is, is when I would focus on one thing at a time. So certainly like don't download 10 apps. You're right. That's going to be overwhelming. But if you've got a budget crisis and you need a tool to help you get out of that, then start with the budget crisis and then move on to the next thing on the list. I wasn't thinking about reading this, but this is so perfect for what you're saying. Uh, I wrote an essay also in the book Essential. So there's a whole like chapter on goals and success in there. This one's called When Goals Are Important and When They Are Not. People have all sorts of clever words to describe what they want to do. Objective, target, plan, in-game, outcome, goal. If you know me, then you know I was the goal guy when I was in the corporate world. I had financial goals, health goals, sales goals, vacation goals, even consumer purchasing goals. I had spreadsheets of goals, precisely tracking and measuring and readjusting my plans accordingly. These days, life is different, and I no longer have goals. Instead of an arbitrary target, I prefer to have a direction in which I travel. If you're searching for a sunrise, it's important to be headed east. For a sunset, it's important to be headed west. I do, however, believe that there was a time in my life when goals were direly important, when I was in a hole and I needed to get out of that hole. Truth be told, most of my goals were ridiculous or even irrelevant, i.e. purchasing and accumulation goals. But a few of my goals helped immensely, like getting out of debt and losing 80 pounds. I liken these latter goals to escaping a crater in the middle of the desert. When I was fat and up to my eyeballs in debt, lingering in that bowl-shaped cavity beneath the ground, my goal was to break free from the sun-scorched basin to find the earth's surface. I couldn't even fathom a direction from down there. I simply needed to get out of the hole, and my goals helped me do that. By the way, this is a little parenthetical here, I don't want to give too much credit to the goals, since it was actually my consistent actions over time that got me out of those fat and debt craters, not the goals themselves, end parenthetical. Uh, Once I found the surface, though, I no longer needed goals. I simply needed to look around and pick a direction in which I wanted to travel. It was Lao Tzu who once said, a good traveler has no fixed plans and is not intent on arriving. For me, There were mountains to the west, flat plains to the east, sand dunes to the south, and whispering pine forests to the north, all blanketed by the complete sum of endless blue heavens above. If I wanted to be on the mountain, I'd travel west. If I wanted to get lost in the forest, I'd head north, and so on. The nice thing about choosing a direction is you never know what you're going to get. You might head west in search of the mountains on the horizon, but along the way find a beautiful river instead. You might traverse the sand dunes only to find a village a few miles from the crater. You never know what's around the bend. Once I got out of my craters, I didn't need goals to enjoy my life. My daily habits helped me do that. I discovered that sometimes it's okay to wander in the direction of your choice. If you get lost, so what? Would that be so bad? Once you're out of the crater, you simply need to stay out of other craters. You can always change your direction if you're unhappy. David in Oakland has a question for us. Have you ever found yourselves regretting getting rid of a particular item in your quest to 
live the minimalist lifestyle, maybe paperwork or a family memento, photos, whatever? That's a good question, David. Have we regretted anything that we've ever gotten rid of? You know, I could probably count on one hand how many times this has happened, but it just happened recently where my family, so my two brothers, my sister, my mom, my grandmother, they're all coming out the first week of March, and I'm really hoping to get some spring skiing in. My brothers have never been snowboarding. Uh, My sister's never been. My mom and grandma love going. Now, I know my mom and my grandma have snow gear, but like my siblings don't. And I had a couple pairs of snow pants that I got rid of the season of 2014. I got rid of two pairs of snow pants um, between uh, Mariah and I. We donated them. So when I booked their tickets to come out here, I'm like, oh, crap, I don't have any snow equipment for them. Man, if I would have held on to those snow pants just in case, I'd have these snow pants for this time that they are going to come out for. So I'm talking to Mariah about this. I'm like, man, remember we had those snow pants? I'm like, this is the first time I've ever like actually uh, experienced a little bit of uh, remorse. And she was like, what are you talking about? She was like, Kelsey's got a pair of snow pants. Uh, this is her friend. Kelsey's got a pair of snow pants we can borrow. I know my parents got a, a couple pairs of snow pants. They wouldn't mind lending your family. And it turns out, like, w- when I was looking at it from this angle, you know, we realized, like, yeah, there are plenty of people around us who have some snow gear that my family can borrow. I don't have to go out and spend money on it and, and buy new gear just for this one-time event. They're going to rent all of their equipment, uh, so they've got that covered. Um, but yes, do we ever feel remorse? Um, yes, I, I guess in that instance. But you know, at the end of the day, letting go of those snow pants, I don't regret. Right now, talking about it, I do not regret donating uh, those snow pants that we that Mariah and I got rid of. In fact, letting go of all of those just-in-case items, it allowed me to let go of thousands of other items. So let's say that I changed my ways right now and I said, you know what, I'm going to hold on to all these just-in-case items. My home would be brimming with just-in-case items. But you know what, I'd have that pair of snow pants the next time uh, my family comes over, but I would be miserable the other 364 days of the year. You have 200,000 just-in-case items just so two of them actually worked out for you. Yeah, and so, so being willing to let go of just-in-case items actually empowers us to, to live a less cluttered, more intentional life. And I think what, what you're saying, Ryan, is by letting go of that and then feeling the initial twinge of regret, the way you got over that regret <laughs> is uh, by, by talking it out with the people around you and realizing that there are alternate solutions to the things that you, you let go of. You know, I think for me, the way I get over the regret is by realizing I was giving too much meaning to the stuff. Uh, I'll tell you a story. I did an experiment a few years ago. A journalist asked me, like, what are, what are some of your favorite things? You're a minimalist. What are your favorite things? And so I listed a, uh, a shirt that I owned at the time. It was like my favorite uh, button-up shirt. And then my favorite pair of jeans and my favorite pair of, of shoes were, were three of my favorite things they were asking about. And then I got to thinking about it. And I said, well, wait a minute. Why are these my favorite things? Why am I giving and allowing these things to have that much meaning, that they are my favorite things? And, and I realized that I was attached to them without much reason for them being my favorite things. So I did an experiment with a journalist, actually. I said, you know what? These are my favorite things, but I'd like to get rid of them as an experiment to see what am I going to feel by letting go of them. 
And by letting go of them, I realized that other things stepped in and became my favorite things. And I didn't need to give that same meaning to that shirt. By getting rid of my favorite shirt, a new shirt jumped into its place and became my, quote, favorite shirt, but with less attachment because I realized I could always walk away from it in the future if it was no longer presenting me the same value that it did in the past. So I think being willing to let go of the stuff uh, is is actually a step toward not regretting it by realizing it doesn't have the meaning unless you give it some sort of meaning. I just thought of something. You know, we always talk about when people buy something, how they have this very limited joy or this like elation, uh, this high that doesn't go far past the checkout line, right? The same thing happens when you let go of something. You may experience this initial twinge of regret, but it doesn't last very long. The benefits on the other side are are so much more worth it than focusing on that twinge of regret. Right. The, what we're experiencing now, the more meaningful life, far exceeds any you know, small morsel of regret you might experience. No, I, I, I think you won't experience regret if you, if you give it less meaning and any morsel of regret that you do experience it is, it is shadowed by, by the joy, by the elation that you feel from living a more deliberate life. And getting rid of the thousands of other just-in-case items. Chris in Toronto has our final voicemail question, question, question of the day. <laughs> Chris, uh, let's let's hear from Chris, and then we'll we'll go to a lightning round after this. Man, you guys keep talking about coffee, and I find it really interesting. Uh, coffee being a pretty taxing thing on the environment, being a pretty difficult thing to be minimal about in some ways. Um, I work for a coffee roastery based out of Calgary called Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters. We do a lot of direct trade, a lot of like work really, really closely with, with the farmers in a way that nobody else is really doing right now. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess a question I kind of had for you was how do you personally balance, um, your feelings towards minimalism and the sort of expansive reach that coffee has in, in terms of its environmental impact and, and stuff like that? Thanks, Chris. I really love uh, Phil and Sebastian. We, whenever we're ever up in Canada, uh, Calgary in particular, I've been to their shop and, uh, they have a beautiful, very intentional operation. Yeah, so when it comes to coffee and waste, I think there are two sides of it, right? There is the production side of the coffee, and then there's the consumption side of the coffee. And I'll, I'll cover the consumption side first because I think that's probably the easiest. There are ways that you can consume coffee a little bit more environmentally friendly by bringing your own mug. I know here at our local roastery in Missoula, Montana, Black Coffee Roasteries, you bring a mug. I think you get 25 or 50% or fifty percent off, 25 or 50 cents off. Yeah. Some, some places are even a dollar off if you bring your own, your own mug. I uh, am not perfect and remember it every single time, but sometimes uh, I do uh, often bring that in there and save 50 cents or save 25 cents. Um, another way too is when you go get your coffee beans, you can bring your own bag. I do that too with the same roaster. They give a dollar off the bag. It's like if you walk into that shop and, you bring, and you're getting beans, you bring your own bag and you bring your own mug um, you end up saving like two or three bucks by the, all the discounts they gave you for buying the beans, bringing your own bag, so forth and so on. So on the consumption end, yes, there are ways to do that. There was a gal uh, down at Bandit Coffee when Josh and I were down there who brought in her own mason jar. So there are ways on the consumption end we can certainly uh, have a uh, friendlier impact on the environment. Now on the production end of it, this is where uh, the vast majority of the problem lies 
and usually it lies with those mass-produced coffees, cheap coffees, coffees uh, that you are going to use for uh, instant, or uh, I'm not going to name any names because I don't want to bash any mass coffee producers. Those coffees are grown in unnatural environments. Now, what is an unnatural coffee environment? They are open. There's no shade. Because there's no shade, they have to use chemicals to combat some of the flora or uh, to, to put some of the flora back in that the sunlight kills. And yes, there are tons of pollution and runoff from those coffee farms that are damaging the environment around them. Now, if you are like Josh and I and drink single origin or small lots, now those are typically grown in natural environments. Now, small lot coffee, single origin coffee, it's going to cost a little bit more. But, you know, for Josh and I, uh, A, it, it tastes a lot better and, and B, um, it's a much better overall uh, experience, not just for us, but for the environment on, on focusing on buying those types of coffees. Now, do, have I stopped at a gas station at one o'clock in the morning when Josh and I are driving, uh, you know, from Albuquerque, New Mexico to Phoenix, Arizona, and we're in, in the middle of nowhere and I need to get that caffeine fix? Yeah, I'm not perfect, but I certainly uh, don't buy a lot of that coffee. So yes, uh, coffee does uh, hurt the environment if it's done uh, in unnatural ways. Um, Josh and I try to consume as responsibly as possible. But I think that this coffee conversation, it kind of carries over to other goods and services too, right? Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, well, I would just say that that intention isn't binary. And so that starts with things like coffee or or clothes or whatever. It's not about not consuming any coffee whatsoever. It's about being responsible with our consumption. And and that can provide to be a, a metaphor for the, the larger issue of consuming anything that we bring into our lives more responsibly. Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree with you, Ryan. I think if uh, the best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, then you've got other issues, right? Because if we're not consuming responsibly, we get to a point where it just becomes momentum is guiding our every single day. We're not being intentional about what we're doing. And it actually reminds me of another essay that, that we wrote. It's one of my favorites. It's about my favorite coffee shop in, in Dayton, Ohio. And this provided to be a metaphor for life in general. It's called Life is an Acquired Taste. The best coffee house in the United States isn't located in Seattle, Portland, New York City, or any of the usual suspects. Press Coffee Bar is nestled between a parking lot and a sewing shop across the street from a pair of abandoned warehouses and beneath several stories of old brick apartments in Dayton, Ohio. The birthplace of aviation, the cash register, and hundred-spoke gold rims. I was sitting in press recently, tucked in the back, enjoying a black coffee, a subtle milieu of roasted beans and Radiohead's OK computer in the atmosphere around me. Back in Dayton for a spell, I was spending a lot of time there, dotting the I's and crossing the T's of our most recent book, Everything That Remains. The shop's tattooed proprietors, Brett and Janelle Barker, were, as usual, hard at work behind the counter. The Barkers, a husband and wife duo, are wonderful in more ways than one. Friendly, attentive, passionate, and sticklers for detail. From the wood floors and the wood panel walls to the music and the changed monthly local art installations, everything at press is carefully and intentionally curated, not to mention a handful of employees who feel much more like family 
than staff, and customers who seem to embody the Cheers-esque camaraderie. Then there's the coffee, of course, sourced from only the best roasters and brewed and pulled so carefully, so meticulously, it resembles art much more than food service. All of which culminates in the perfect coffee house. Elegant, unpretentious, simple. The simplicity of press transcends the shop itself. Not simple for the sake of being simple. Press is simple because they've eliminated the excess in favor of the essential. It was Brett, after all, who convinced me to do the same with my coffee. I used to load my cup of joe with heaps of cream and sweetener until it was more a weak, milky, calorie-laden dessert than a drink. As I stirred in the excess, Brett would quietly rib me, encourage me to enjoy the flavor without the additives. Of course, I didn't listen. Not at first, at least. Not until the day when they ran out of my sweetener of choice and I was forced to go without... It was an unpleasant shock at first, drinking only coffee and cream, but soon my taste buds adjusted. I could better taste the coffee, and I went without sweetener from then on. A month later, being the experimenter I am, I wondered what my coffee would taste like without milk. So I ordered one and shook my head when Janelle asked whether I wanted room for cream. Being unacclimated, the first sip was bitter, a strong punch to the palate. A few days in, I acquired the taste, and for the first time in my life, I could taste the actual coffee. It was more delicious than any of the sugary, weak, milky cups of yesteryear, and I never went back. Black coffee is a perfect metaphor for life. When you eliminate the excess, when you deliberately avoid life's empty calories, what remains is exponentially more delicious, more enjoyable, more worthwhile. It might be a bitter shock at first, but much like coffee, a meaningful life is an acquired taste. Sip slowly and enjoy. You know, uh, I think this is particularly close to us right now because Ryan and I just opened up a coffee shop with some friends of ours down in St. Petersburg, Florida uh, called uh, Bandit Coffee. And hopefully you all get, get to check it out. But this is a very important topic to us because we do want to source coffee that is very intentional, that goes out of the way with the roasters who go out of their way to partner with small lots and local farms. In fact, some of the coffees we were serving last time we were working there, the coffee itself, the, the, so if it was, say it was from Guatemala or Peru, it was actually named after the specific farmer who was farming those beans. And so being more responsible, being more intentional that way is important. And then I think once you start to do that, whether it's with coffee or with clothes or with gadgets, it starts to bleed over into all other areas of life. And so just keep in mind that simplicity is not binary. This isn't about not consuming at all. It's about consuming in a more responsible way, in a way that produces less waste. It's better for the world around us. And ultimately, it's better for us as individuals. And, of course, we'd love to hear what you say about any of these random topics here, whether it's, it's coffee or relationships or tracking tools or clothing and jewelry or supportive people in your life, whatever it may be. If you have a, a comment um, about any of these topics for this episode, just give us a call, 406-219-7839. We'll air some of our favorite comments and tips on the next episode. And if we do select your voicemail, you'll get an autographed copy of one of our books, either Essential or Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life, or my personal favorite, Everything That Remains. All right, let's move on to our iTunes comment 
of the week. This one comes from Satbaki. It's titled Grateful, Inspiring, Uplifting, Thought-Provoking, and Humorous. My first introduction to podcasts and minimalism. Never felt the desire to give a review on iTunes until now. Furthermore, I can't enjoy any other podcasts since this one sets the bar high and none are so easy to listen to, enjoyable and inspiring. Thank you, thank you, thank you for such a positive message. Most grateful and humbled. Well, Satbaki, thank you very much for your message. That's really humbling for us. It's really good to know that we are making a difference and helping people uh, live more meaningful lives. Yeah, definitely. I'd love to send you a copy. Since you're new to minimalism, I'd love to send you a copy of Everything That Remains. That's always the book I recommend reading first because it's the why to book of, of our trilogy of minimalism books. Uh, but thank you to everyone else, too, who everyone who has left us a review on iTunes. Your positive, honest reviews help our Simple Living message reach so many more ears and uh, have helped us climb the charts. We've been the top 30 podcasts on iTunes, number one health podcast on iTunes, and uh, top 10 in Australia, top 20 in Canada. We're really grateful for everyone who has listened and downloaded, and especially to those of you who have commented. Uh, so keep the, those comments on iTunes coming. We'll read some of our favorite iTunes comments on this podcast, so feel free to get extra, extra creative with your comments so we can, we can read some entertaining, funny, or enlightening comments on our next podcast. Okay, Josh, it's time to move on to our hashtag Ask the Minimalists lightning round, where we answer questions from social media. Yes, indeed. We are on Twitter and Instagram at The Minimalists, and we're on Facebook.com slash The Minimalists. Our first question comes from Stephanie. Stephanie writes, could you tell us some of the hurdles you faced after removing clutter and how you dealt with those hurdles? Well, uh, I'm thinking of the first hurdle that comes to mind for me um, after the packing party was getting rid of all my stuff. So, you know, I ended up selling, donating, and throw, throwing away some of it. Um, but the vast majority I donated. I started to sell everything, and some things sold really quickly. Like, you know, I had a big screen TV that sold really quickly, a stereo system that sold really quickly. Because you're not allowed to be a minimalist if you have any electronics at all. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was like my second or third TV that I sold. <laughs> <laughs> and a stereo system, uh, surround sound system that I hardly ever use. Um, those things sold really quickly, but then when it came to like my two year old cell phones or, you know, my outdated GPS system or whatever it was, uh, that I felt had value, I was waiting to sell eventually. I just let it go. I just gave it to friends or family members. Actually my GPS system, I gave to a friend who ended up regifting it, um, as uh, like a Christmas gift who that person got a ton of value, uh, from that, from that GPS and I let it go because keeping track of all that inventory, following up with all those emails, making sure that my posts were up to date, removing the ones that were older, putting the new ones up. I mean, it was costing me a lot of time. And ultimately, what I decided was that time uh, was worth more to me to do other things with than to nickel and dime myself to death with all these little gadgets and accessories that I was trying to sell over Craigslist and eBay. So that, that was that was probably like my the, my first hurdle that I can remember. 
Yeah, if you're looking for a good place to donate a lot of stuff, I mean, you, you can find places locally. I know in, in Missoula, we have a place called Donation Warehouse. They're awesome. They even pick up, like, big furniture and stuff from you. But uh, you can go, go to donationtown.org. In many cities, they have a list of, of very responsible places to donate your stuff. I, for me, the hurdle that I faced initially when I was letting go of the stuff is I spent way too much time scrutinizing everything I was trying to let go of. I wish I would have done what Ryan did, and, and, and you know we didn't have the packing party until well after I had embraced minimalism. I, I spent eight months just neurosing over junk that wasn't bringing me any joy, but I, I didn't think of just-in-case back then. For me, just-in-case was a justification to hold on to everything that might provide hypothetical value to me in a far-off, non-existent future. And, and so I spent way too much time scrutinizing. But once I did finally embrace minimalism, got rid of 90% of my stuff, and considered myself a, a minimalist, the hurdles that I, I encountered were within the five values that Ryan and I have identified. So our, our first book is called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. We write about the five values that we uncovered, health, relationships, passion, growth, contribution. So that third one, especially the passion one, I had a career, a very successful career. But as I uncovered what my values were, I realized that my career was not in line with my values anymore. So I needed to make adjustments there. I needed to change my identity to a great extent because I had to stop answering that question of what do you do with the same job title description? And so I had to start focusing on what I was actually passionate about. And so I think the hurdles, they weren't actually hurdles for me. They were they were new things on which I was focusing my time. And it was very difficult at first. If you haven't been focused on your health for most of your life, you haven't been focused on the, focused on the relationships around you, you haven't been focusing on cultivating a passion, those things are going to be difficult at first. It's like going to the gym for the very first time. You're going to be pretty sore after your first workout, but if you stick to it, it gets easier and easier and easier. So focusing on on those five values, and Stephanie, I'd love to send you a copy of Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. I I hope it helps out. All right. Our next question comes from Elena. What do you think about Zen design of a home after the clutter is gone. You know, I've never really much been into the aesthetics at my home. And it's funny, like when I got rid of everything, how this feng shui thing started to make sense to me. Because I remember after the packing party and everything was empty and you know, furniture's covered up, I uncovered the couch, uncovered the coffee table, and I sat down to do some email or whatever it was. And I just remember like this just elated feeling of working in a clean space. There wasn't paper strewn across the coffee table. There wasn't knickknacks and, and stuff up on the, uh, I had like this little fireplace that actually didn't work. Uh, there was just like a little mantle up there. There were no knickknacks above there uh, distracting me um, that I could see out of my periphery. There, it was clean. And before out of my periphery, I could see all this junk and it was definitely distracting. I didn't even realize it until I got out of there. And it's so much more calm when you eliminate that that excess. There's There's visual noise everywhere. And I think we don't, we don't understand it because we're so steeped in it. At the very beginning of this episode, which seems like many, many hours ago now, we were talking about the, the deprivation tanks. But minimalism is a way to sort of uh, set, set that up where you just turn down the volume on your senses, especially visually. I think that there is an inherent beauty in simplicity. There is an inherent beauty in minimalism. With minimalism, the bones are the beauty. And so if you, if you want to take a tour of my old apartment back in Dayton, Ohio, you can find that at our website, a bunch of uh, photographs there, theminimalists.com 
slash apartment. And then uh, coming this spring, if you follow us on Instagram and other social media platforms, and we'll end up putting it on our blog as well. But especially on Instagram, we'll do uh, some photographs of uh, different apartment tours of what we're doing. We're also going to do a, I I think this is a perfect example, the the coffee shop that we are now partners in, Bandit Coffee. We're going to do a photo tour of of their facility. It is super simple. It is beautiful. So uh, you can check all that out at at Instagram.com slash The Minimalists. Yeah, and I just want to say, you know, if you came to my home right now, uh, Mariah and I's home, you wouldn't think like, wow, these guys must be minimalist because of all the stark white walls. And uh, we don't have stark white walls. We have like two couches in our living room. She has a cat uh, with a litter box that that you could uh, see if you, you know, walk around our house. I mean, it's not like we have this bare bones uh, living space. So really minimalism is about helping you get down to what is beautiful to you. So for one, the the stark white walls and the bare bones that's beautiful. For another, it might be, uh, you know, having a lot of paintings and family moments uh, around the house, and that's okay too. So any approaches is going to uh, be fine. Uh, just choose yours and what's what's best for you. All right. Our next question is from Tanya. Have you ever refrained from buying something and then regretted it? Tanya, no. I have not ever regretted not buying a material possession. All right, our last question comes from Chloe. How can a person kindly refuse family heirlooms? Yeah, I think, Chloe, it's important to set expectations well in advance. Don't wait until someone's funeral to say, I don't want these these sentimental items. Set the expectations way, way, way in advance. And also, to do that, you're going to let people know that just because you're not going to get value from the thing, that really means that someone else another family member, uh, cousin, whoever, can actually get value from from that item. And I just want you to remember one thing, that our memories are not in our things. Our memories are inside us. And so if for some reason you feel like the heirloom will trigger a memory, you could always take a photograph of it, even if you don't want to consume or hold on to a, a large family heirloom, then you can take a photograph of it and you can still trigger the same memories that are inside you. Yeah. And you know, when Josh left Florida after uh, getting rid of most of his mom's stuff, I mean, there were uh, one or two maybe sentimental items that he hung on to, but how much more do those one or two items have meaning than if they were diluted with hundreds or even thousands of other family heirlooms? So maybe, you know, the question is, how do you you turn on family uh, heirlooms? Maybe it's how do you bring in one family heirloom and make that meaningful? Absolutely. Let's move on to our added value portion of the show. This is where we each recommend something that has added value to our lives recently. You know, I I was thinking about this before we started recording this podcast, and one of the things that's added the most value to my life over the last five years is just blogging as consistently as I can. Uh, You know, I'm really into writing. I spent most of my 20s writing and wanting to be a writer, but I really felt like I radically improved my ability to write consistently when I finally started blogging regularly. And so when we started TheMinimalists.com, I had no idea. I was not tech savvy. I couldn't even spell HTML. But we found a way to sort of cobble together a fairly simple site and then start writing on it. And so um, we have so many people have asked us over over the years, like, how did you guys start your blog? What did you do? How did you make it a successful blog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? And what I learned 
was there is a process after emailing and responding to a bunch of different people. Here's the platform we use with WordPress, and here's how we got our domain, and blah, 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 blah. But there is a whole recipe that we went through. And so Ryan and I wrote about that recipe. If you'd like to see exactly how we started our blog from A to Z, you can read about that whole process. It's called How to Start a Successful Blog Today at theminimalists.com slash blog. But I recommend that everyone... Start blogging, even if you do it under a pseudonym, uh, because you don't want to put your personal life out there. I, I find that it is cathartic, and it's a way to grow in your creativity. And it's also, it also allows you a different way to think about the world around you. Today, I'm going to recommend a pull-up bar for your home. <laughs> now, th- you know, this is something that I have found a lot of value in. I'm laughing because, you know, this is like a random podcast and you going from blogs to me uh, recommending a pull-up bar is pretty random. But the pull-up bar for me helps a lot because I will walk under it and I'll see it and I'll give it one or two pull-ups. And then the next day, I'll walk under it at a certain point and I'll be like, oh, I'm just going to give it the one or two pull-ups. But it started out where I couldn't do any pull-ups. And maybe I would just look at it and I'm like, okay, I'm just going to do an arm hang for 10 or 20 seconds. But for someone who is uh, wanting to incorporate a good exercise routine into their lives, and they need a little bit, uh, they want to start small, I should say. A pull-up bar is a great way to start. Just do a one pull-up. If all you can do is one pull-up, then do one pull-up in the morning and do one pull-up at night. Uh, if you can't even do one pull-up, like I said, you know, start with an arm hang. Just get yourself up there. Hold on as long as you can, and eventually I promise you'll be able to do one, and that one will turn into two, and that two will turn into three, and so forth, yep. and so on. You know, for me, I pull-ups were big. In fact, I couldn't do any. You remember Ryan used to come over to my house, and like you'd, help, you'd hold my feet to help me be able to do one. And finally, I adjusted to be, being able to do one by, by doing enough hangs and by having a partner that would help me you know, through, through that whole process. And I wrote a short essay about this, and I want to read it really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> this one's called Simple Triggers. There's a pull-up bar at the bottom of my stairs. My writing space is upstairs, so each time I head downstairs, I bust out six quick pull-ups. One, two, three, four, five, six. These six take less than 20 seconds. No time at all in the grand scheme of things. That's not the point, though. The point is, each time I go downstairs on my way to the kitchen, the shower, or the great outdoors, I do some pull-ups. One triggers the other. It's habitual. Now, on the average day, I sneak in an extra 60 or so pull-ups. Every habit has a trigger. Most of the time, we don't know our triggers. And much of the time, we unconsciously trigger bad habits. Finishing a meal triggers a cigarette. Arriving home triggers hours of TV viewing. Incessant alcohol consumption triggers arguing with loved ones. We can, however, change our behaviors, be it exercise or diet or even flossing our teeth. We can trigger positive habits using positive triggers. Uh, Side note, I I do this with with Becca each night now. Like before, like any time that we've gotten into like a serious conversation or something is just steeped in that moment of seriousness, I'll just look at her and say, hey, do you want to go floss with me? 
and like it instantly breaks any sort of uh, uh, tension or, or makes the moment. And it's absurd, but it allows me to, so yeah, break that pattern, change the state, and, and we actually get to go experience a good habit together. Uh, so uh, I'll just finish the last sentence. There's two sentences here. Small triggers create tiny habits to produce huge results over time. The right triggers can flip your life upside down in a good way. Descending the stairs is one of my simple triggers. What are some of yours? And so, yeah, I, the, the pull-up bar, it's one of the most sort of best complete exercises that, that you can do. And I found that you know, even when I couldn't do one, now I can do a bunch because I, I worked my way up to it. And if you have that trigger, you work your way up to it as well. Yeah, I just want to add one last little tip. If you can't find a partner to help you get up there and do an arm hang, then grab a chair, stand on it, and you can, you can get yourself up to the top of the pull-up bar. Let's move on to our next segment, what we call Right Here, Right Now. This is where uh, Ryan and I talk about what's going on in the lives of the minimalists. We finally get to talk about ourselves after two hours of talking about ourselves. <laughs> so every, every Tuesday in, you know, this is actually kind of like, like this episode, this random episode. Every Tuesday, we do Tuesdays with the minimalists on Periscope and Twitter at 7 p.m. Eastern. You can find all the details of that at theminimalists.com slash Tuesdays. But basically, we just get on there for a half hour, an hour, and answer a bunch of random questions, have a lot of fun with it on, on video answering your questions. Uh, also, as you probably know, we have a documentary coming out May 24th, 2016. So excited to share this with you. If you have not seen the trailer yet, go over to minimalismfilm.com, and you can see the trailer right there. And while you're there at minimalismfilm.com, you can click on See the Film and get your tickets. It's showing in a couple hundred cities starting in May. A lot of those cities are selling out pretty quickly. Others need a lot of help. You know, So I was looking at the map yesterday, and we have screenings in almost every single state at this point in a bunch of different cities, whether it's Columbus, Ohio, or New Orleans, or San Diego, or sort of everywhere in between. But if there isn't, for some reason, a screening near you, you can also request a screening there at uh, minimalismfilm.com under the See the Film tab. Uh, finally, I have a, a writing workshop. So most of you all know I, I teach a writing class, uh, a four-week writing class at howtowritebetter.org, which you're welcome to sign up for that. But I just taught a workshop, a, a one-day, two-hour workshop recently, and so many people left great, great comments and got a ton of value from it. Uh, that two-hour workshop was actually, I think, three or maybe four hours long. And so I've decided to do another one this June. So you have some time to sign up for it. But you can just go to howtowritebetter.org. It's uh, June 26th. It's going to be on a Sunday. And even if you can't attend the live one, if you register for it, you can see the, the video after it. And I'll give you a bunch of different resources as well. Hope to see you there. Finally, here are some voicemail comments from our listeners. My name is Laura DeMail Roy. I'm from Newington, Connecticut, and I really loved your episode on relationships, especially the part about engagement rings. Um, I didn't want our engagement ring because I'm just not a jewelry fan, and it wouldn't have brought me any real joy. Um, so everyone thought I was crazy. However, my entire life I've always wanted a horse. I've ridden for a long time, and I just loved horses. Um, so my husband ended up purchasing me my engagement horse. Now, I realized that horse still costs money and a lot of time an effort to maintain, but spending time at the barn riding my horse is one of my greatest joys. You have to be in the moment when you're working with a horse, and the time I spend there is centering and grounding and just leaves me feeling so refreshed. Uh, it also reminds me every day that my husband understands and appreciates who I am and what I value. 
Hey, guys, this is Tyson from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was just calling to tell you that I've been checking out your podcast, and I've really enjoyed them. I've been following you guys for over a year now and have taken steps to minimize clutter in my life. And I wanted to share a tip that I came across while trying to declutter my closet. Uh, I'm a list maker, and uh, uh, so I've got lists like books I've read. I've kept movie tickets. And I found my wife was using Pinterest, so I thought I could use Pinterest to keep all of those lists, books I've read, movies I've seen, uh, and all kind of other things into Pinterest, which is, you know, zero uh, clutter, and then get rid of all the journals or the movie and book lists that I've written down in, in notebooks and uh, ticket stubs. And stuff like that that I've collected over the years that's just, you know, taking up space. So I've converted all that into pin boards on Pinterest. And I, when I watch a movie, now I just pin it on Pinterest. This is Caitlin from Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks so much for answering my question on the podcast. I'm currently in the process of purging a lot of my unnecessary items from my apartment. And right now I'm working on my wardrobe. As I've been doing this, I have a few website recommendations, particularly for women to check out. And these are all .com, Unfancy, Project 333, Cat Berries, Into Mind, and Wardrobe Architect. That's a couple, but I would start with Unfancy. Um, These are all really great websites that help you pare down your wardrobe, All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. Uh, We have a couple episodes coming up, one about careers or mission or passion or job, whatever you want to call it, another episode about money or finances or debt or spending. And uh, we'd love to hear your questions, especially on those or any other questions you might have. Just give us a call. Leave us a voicemail, 406-219-7839. And if you leave here with just one message, as always, We hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for And you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it So take your eyes away Or take